0: And I joke, because as lawyers, that's kind of how we get through the serious business sometimes. <laughs> Mr. DeGarren's not doing anything improper. Mr. Deguerin is doing his job. These are good lawyers. They're good people. But they didn't create this attack. This was started in 1982 by the defendant. How long did he hold out hope that she was coming home? he told his cleaning lady to get rid of all her stuff. He threw away her sewing machine, her medical books, her clothes, her dishes. How long did he hold out hope? Not long at all. There are an infinite number of reasons why Susan would lie, exaggerate, alter the truth to make her best friend Bobby look better. There are zero reasons why Susan would ever utter a single word to make her best friend Bobby
1: look bad. Welcome back to season two of jury duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co host, Brittany Bookbinder.
2: On Wednesday, September 8th, Deputy DA Habib Balian stepped up to the lectern as the prosecution commenced their highly anticipated closing arguments. In his lively oration, Balian laid out a concise narrative of Robert Durst's alleged crimes and deployed videos of trial testimony to sharpen his case.
1: This episode is all about the prosecution's closing argument strategy. Habib Balian's use of emotion, metaphor, and repetition to convince the jury of Robert Durst's guilt. We'll examine all parts of the day's argument, from Balian's self-effacing humor to his righteous anger aimed at the defendant for allegedly taking the lives of Kathy Durst, Susan Berman, and Morris
3: Black.
2: That's coming up after the break. When Habib Balian took the lectern on Wednesday morning, he kicked off the proceedings with a bit of levity.
0: thought this day would never come. But um, it's here, and I want to thank you for your patience. Uh, when I stood up here, I saw some sighs, and it's hard to tell like, if those sighs were more like, oh, man, Mr. Balian's giving the argument, or like, oh, Mr. has given the argument.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but do not worry. Do not worry. Mr. Lewin gave me a list of some topics he wanted me to cover. So,
1: Balian then lugged a two-feet-high stack of documents onto the counsel's table. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm joking, of course. I'm joking. And I joke because as lawyers... That's kind of how we get through the serious business sometimes. It's been a long trial. A lot of life events have passed since we started this, like almost two years ago, 18 months ago, whatever it was. We've lost some people. We've lived through a pandemic. Some of us have had good news, having children. I moved my son into college a couple weeks ago. He was in the sixth grade when I started working on this case. It's been a long time. And I think I can speak for everyone here, I hope. I know I speak for the people. I think I speak for the defense, and I believe I speak for the court. When I tell you that I don't think anyone here has seen a jury that is more attentive, more diligent, and honestly, more patient than you all have been, and we really appreciate that. We honestly do. This has been a long trial. But I don't want you to be confused. Just because something is long, just because it involves a lot of evidence, just because it takes a long time to produce to you, that doesn't mean it's difficult. It just doesn't mean it's difficult. Please don't confuse the length of time it took to present three murders to you with complexity or difficulty, because at its heart, case is easy this case is not difficult at all this case is about a young woman who was intelligent who was bright who according to her family you heard their testimony her friends she lit up every room she walked into and she she knew the love and support of a large supportive community that's how she was raised and that's what life was like for her. And she was ambitious. And she was determined. And she didn't take no for an answer. She was a dental, worked in a dental hygiene office at the age of like 17 or 18 and then decided, you know what, I'm going to nursing school. And then when that wasn't enough for her, she said, you know what, I'm gonna be a doctor. There was no stopping this woman, this young lady I'll call her. And she met this man. She thought it was Prince Charming. And they were gonna be partners together. And she started down this road with him. Unbeknownst to her, it turned out to be a very treacherous path. And she became abused. She became controlled. In a single word to describe what happened to Kathleen Durst, she became absolutely dominated. Emotional, financial, physical. And this bright woman who lit up every room that she walked into was wiped off the face of the earth, taken away from her family and after he killed her he went to his best friend he chose wisely he knew she would help him given how fiercely loyal she was given her moral code given her loyalty how she puts loyalty above everything else and together they embarked in a campaign to obscure the truth to lead the investigation in a completely wrong direction. And she called the medical school on his behalf, pretending to be Kathleen Durst. He almost got away with it, but for this reinvestigation that happened. And during this reinvestigation, the pressure came on again. And what did he do? Like Kathleen Durst, he wiped her away. She helped him get out of that jam. And the thing she got was to get a bullet in the back of her head, by her best friend. This case is easy. Morris Black, when the defendant runs and hides and flees to Galveston, there's only one person who can lead the police to his doorstep. Who knows about who he is? Who knows apparently about the reinvestigation? And what does he do? Like Kathy, like Susan, he gets wiped off the face of the earth, chopped up thrown in Galveston Bay. So why are we here? This case is easy. This case can be summed up to you in nine simple words. It was her or me. I had no choice. That says it all. What it says is that it was him or Susan because either he's going to kill her or he feared she was going to go to the authorities with what she knew. Sadly, at the end of the day, When it was her or me, I had no choice. It was going to have to be her. That's why we're here. Our burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. So please hold us to that standard. The judge has instructed you what that is. We're not afraid of that burden. We don't shy away from it. We embrace that standard. But we have overwhelming circumstantial evidence of his guilt. We have overwhelming direct evidence of his guilt. We have... Physical evidence corroborating everything these witnesses have told you. We have multiple confessions and admissions of his guilt. We have a defendant who took the stand and said whatever he thought you wanted to hear and lied repeatedly to avoid responsibility. This case is not difficult, but there are two sides to every story. And Mr. DeGuerin, in opening statement, explained to you, I thought quite effectively, he showed you a card, an index card. And on the front side of the card, he showed you pi. And that represents the people. And then he flipped over the card. And on the opposite side of the card, he showed you the delta sign. And that represents the defendant. That's how we, that's how we notate. And he flipped the card back and forth. And he told you, well, this is a way to represent there's two sides to every story. And he is right. So let's look. What was presented on the people side? Facts supported by witnesses. Facts supported by witnesses that corroborated each other. Facts supported by witnesses that were consistent with each other. Facts supported by witnesses that were supported by the physical evidence. Facts supported by witnesses that were corroborated by statements and admissions by the defendant himself. Facts, most importantly, that made common sense. So that's what was presented on the people's side. What was on the other side of this card? The wild imaginations of one man. The wild imaginations that are unsupported by any evidence. The wild imaginations that are lies. The wild imaginations that are inconsistent with the evidence that was presented. This one man. He raised his hand and he took an oath to tell the truth to all of you. What does he think of that oath?
5: In terms of the whole truth, if you
0: want to leave out something that does not, uh, which makes you
4: look bad if you tell it, but does not turn into an
0: untruth, well, try it. Try it. Try it. Oh, he tried it all right. People's faces falling on his foot, Kathy rubbing her glove into her cheek, somehow magically causing a black eye, not even the place where he was rubbing it. Oh, he tried it like gangbusters. Well, according to that clip, at least he's saying I wouldn't lie to you about everything. It's just the part in the middle. That part in the middle, the whole truth. You can mislead a little bit, but but I'll tell the truth. Does he really believe that? Would you lie under oath to help your case?
3: Yes.
0: He sat here. He raised his hand. He swore to tell the truth. And then he proceeded to admit to you that he would lie under oath. What would he lie about? What kind of
4: things? Have you lied thus far during your testimony at this trial? No. But if you had lied, given your last answer, you might not admit it, correct? Got to think about it for a while.
0: Correct. He would even lie about lying. That's how intricate his web of lies get. He would lie to you about whether he lied. He would lie about important things. Would he lie On about On
4: direct examination, do you remember the first thing that Mr. DeGuerrin asked you?
3: He asked me if I told Susan Burn.
4: Did you know that question was coming?
3: Yes.
4: Yeah. And You denied it, is that right?
3: I said no.
4: If, in fact, you had killed her, would you tell us?
3: No.
0: He wouldn't tell you? That's truthful. What's he supposed to do, get up there and say, yeah, I killed Susan Berman? Would he lie about killing, saying he didn't kill Kathy?
4: Mr. Durris, if I were to ask you right now, If you had killed Kathy, and I asked you, Mr. Durst, you're under oath right now today. Did you kill Kathy? Would you tell us? No. How about Morris? Let me ask you, Mr. Durst, if you had murdered
0: Morris Black, would you tell us? No. The three main issues in this case, you're here to decide. That man took an oath. And lied to you repeatedly, and then admitted to you he would lie to you about those three things. But there's a difference between saying, I would lie and I did lie, right? Just because someone says they would lie doesn't mean they actually did lie. Did he actually lie to you? No. I'm, now I'm talking about your trial here.
3: I lied on several things.
4: And when you say several things, Mr. Durst. Uh, would you agree that several is more likely many?
3: Overall, I would say five.
0: He throws the number out, five. I would suggest to you, you underestimated a bit, but did he lie to you? Yes, he actually lied to you. Let me ask you this. Say you go to a restaurant and you order a bowl of soup. And your soup comes, and this is what you find in it.
2: Balian's PowerPoint displayed an image of two cockroaches in a bowl of soup.
0: Do You just pick out that bug, that cockroach, toss it aside, and say, you know what? I'm just going to finish this soup. I'm just going to eat it all up. I'm going to take it in. The cockroach is gone. This soup is not tainted. This soup is not infected. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to send the soup back. You're gonna want a new bowl. You're probably not gonna eat at that restaurant anymore because you can't tell which part of that soup is tainted and which part of that soup is not tainted. It's all infected with lies, but it's
1: worse in this case. This is what was served to you. A new image appeared, another bowl, but this one filled with cockroaches. Literally, you were served a bowl
0: of cockroaches. And you were told, you pick out which ones are bad and which ones are good. You toss them aside. But you can trust the rest of that soup. Go ahead and eat it up. Lap it up. Use your common sense.
2: Although the image of roaches was used as a metaphor for Robert Durst's lies, as Balian moved on to enumerate the defendant's actions, it was hard not to also link those images of infestation to Bob's behavior.
0: Of all the vicious and vile acts you've heard, One of the most atrocious things that this man, Robert Durst, has done in this trial is the way he's attacked Kathy. It's bad enough he killed her. It's bad enough he abused her. It's bad enough he tortured her. But he has the gall to come in here
3: and attack her
0: over and over, assault her over and over with his words, when we all know she's dead and cannot defend herself. He calls her a cocaine addict. He calls her a medical school dropout, a flunky. He calls her someone who just ran away from her life, abandoned her family who she clearly loved. I don't want you to sit here and somehow think that the defense attorneys have done anything improper in this case. You know, just because Mr. DeGarren gets up there and says, you know, asks repeatedly about cocaine use, etc. Mr. DeGarren's not doing anything improper. Mr. DeGuerin is doing his job. These are good lawyers. They're good people. But they didn't create this attack. This was started in 1982 by the defendant. By the defendant. He started this attack.
1: Balian then reminded the jury of how Durst emotionally abused his wife, Kathy. Ann
0: Anderson Doyle was their next door neighbor. And she would describe frequent times when Kathy would come running over after they'd had a fight. And a lot of what she talked about was this type of demeaning and emotional abuse designed to assault Kathy's very soul. He would um, call her words and names
4: and demean her and, you know, not, not support her
0: and uh... What words did he call her that you remember?
5: Well, he would just
4: call her like, you know, like skank and uh, uh, that she wasn't good enough and she was, she was a nobody and
0: uh, who did she think she was? It went on. Did she tell you that he called her stupid and an idiot?
4: Absolutely stupid and an idiot, that she wouldn't, there was no point in doing medicine, like all these kinds. I mean, really a general sense of assassination, character,
0: assassination, or confidence. A character or confidence assassination. That's what emotional abuse is designed to do. It's an attack on Kathy's confidence. It's an attack on her confidence. It's designed to make Kathy feel like she can't do anything without him. She's stupid. She's an idiot. There's no point in doing medical school. And that's what he tried to do. That's how he tries to hold her down beneath him.
2: Next, Balian described how Durst's abuse became physical.
0: Through 1980 and 81, she continued to suffer abuse while in medical school. You heard from Dr. Alicia landman Rainier, and she described as Kathy's classmates, seeing Kathy come in with bruises on her face and marks on her neck, and this was around 1980. You heard from Dr. Helen Block, and this was in 1981 or 1982 while they were in medical school, and she was a classmate of Kathy's, and she described one incident she observed. This I remember so clearly in my mind, um, she came to the, uh, was in the cafeteria and uh, she was wearing huge, dark sunglasses, Um, and
3: uh, uh, there was little tears in her eyes when she took her sunglasses down and she had a black eye.
0: Imagine how embarrassing for Kathy to have to come into her medical school before her classmates with a black eye and try to hide it from them by wearing sunglasses.
4: When Kathy's sunglasses came off, what was the response? Other medical students
3: who were there. We all said, don't go back
4: to
0: And then her testimony was Kathy didn't deny it. She didn't say, what are you talking about? Don't go back to who. She sat there silent, thereby acknowledging who did this to her. That's what Kathy's life was like while she was in medical school. And by March 4th, 1981, Kathy's at her wits' end she's being abused, she's being tortured, and she meets with Dr. Peter Wilk at her medical school during one of their, I believe, routine meetings. And what did Dr. Wilk tell you? He was in charge of her surgery rotation. He met with her on March 4th. He said, I had never spoken to a person in that emotional state before. He described the pure terror, the pure fear that he witnessed. He said, I've probably thought about that meeting a thousand times in my life. I'd remember the session without notes even today, all these years later, almost 40 years later. But he had notes. And he described you. He read them to you. And he described what, what Kathy told him. Did she tell you who uh, was causing this unpleasantness in his mouth?
5: Yes. She-, she said it was her. Uh, she mentioned that she had been married for eight years. He was an older person, um, 10, 10 years older, and that we were she used the word that I've never heard you before. She said there was a homicidal side to it.
0: Kathy was terrified. Kathy was living in fear.
1: Having established Durst's pattern of emotional and physical abuse, Habib Balian outlined the events that occurred on the night of January 31st, 1982, the last night Kathy was seen alive.
0: It started for Kathy Durst at this South Salem cottage where she spent the day with the defendant. And they had an argument. And she ran over to Gilberta's house, drove over there in Newtown, Connecticut. And if you recall, this wasn't a party Gilberta was having. It didn't involve cocaine and vegetables like he talks about. This was a family meal with her Lebanese father, who's pretty strict, a meal prepared by Gilberta with her sister there, not expecting Kathy. And what was Kathy's demeanor when she came over?
3: She needed to speak to Gilberta and she was upset.
0: She was upset. And how did Fadwa know that Kathy was upset?
5: Her frantic way that she came in the house and uh, some of the discussion that I kind of overheard in the tone of voices from the kitchen.
0: Okay, what did you overhear in that tone? That
5: she was upset with Bobby, and that they had an argument.
0: They had an argument that day. An argument bad enough to send her driving over to interrupt Gilberta's dinner with her family and to try to get Gilberta's attention to talk about this argument. And in the midst of this angst and anger and trying to talk to Gilberta, It's interesting, because Kathy makes a call. Kathy calls Peter Schwartz, and she asks him about the civil suit he has against her husband. And he told her the case was dismissed. His civil suit case for the assault on him was dismissed. And what's Kathy's response when she learns the civil case is dismissed? She says, you should sue my husband. Kathy became, according to Peter Schwartz, more and more agitated as she learned that the case was dismissed. She's upset. And Kathy gets a call from her husband, says, I got to go. She gets in the car. She drives down Sugar Tree Lane. And that's the last time that Gilberta or Fadwa ever saw Kathy again. She goes home. Of course, Kathy comes home. She's like, you bribed the lawyers. And what kind of fight was it that they had that night?
5: Was that argument just a verbal argument?
0: No,
3: that
5: was a pushing, shoving argument.
0: A pushing and shoving argument. A violent confrontation. That's what happened when he was the last one with her, on her last moments of her life. There was a violent confrontation between these two. Kathleen Durst, whose bright light lit up every room on January 31st, 1982, was wiped out
3: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bailey and then posited for the jury the significance of the fact that Kathy's body was never found.
0: And what does the fact that her body has never been found tell us? What does that tell you? When someone dies a natural death in their home, their body is found by someone, usually a loved one. When they walk in front of a bus and they're struck by a bus, their body is left in the street and found. When they're in a dark alley doing a drug deal and they get whacked or killed, their body is left in the street. And it is found. Bodies don't just vanish into thin air. So what does the fact that Kathy's body was never found tell you? It tells you that whoever got rid of her body, the discovery of her body would have implicated that person in her death. That's the only reason you get rid of the body. Because if somebody finds the body, wherever they find it, the circumstances under which they find it is going to implicate you. So you must get rid of the body. And who would be implicated if Kathy's body was, in fact, found inside this South Salem home? Who had a motive to kill Kathy? Who'd been abusing her for years in an escalating nature that would naturally lead to her death? Who had been abusing her emotionally and physically? Who was in the middle of a very bitter divorce from her? Who was the only person who lived in that house where she was killed and her body would have been found? Who later confessed to killing Kathy to Susan Berman? Who later confessed to killing them all while in the bathroom by himself? Only one person whose discovery of that body alone would have implicated, and that's this man. As human beings, We're hopeful creatures. We always want to look for the best. When a loved one goes missing, we want to believe they're going to come home. As human beings, that's what we do. But if you know she's already dead, how long are you going to hold out hope that she's coming home? Well, how long did he hold out hope that she was coming home? He told his cleaning lady to get rid of all her stuff threw away her sewing machine, her medical books, her clothes, her dishes. How long did he hold out hope? Not long at all. You heard from Karen Minatello from their East 86th Street apartment. What did he do with Kathy's stuff? All of her personal belongings were jamming the trash compactor. And what does he try to say? He tries to say, oh, this must have been a new tenant who threw the stuff away. If you recall that testimony, that's his excuse. But if you recall the testimony of Karen Minatello, she was specifically asked when this happened. And it was just days after Kathy disappeared. If you know she's already dead, how long are you gonna hold out hope? You're gonna hold out zero hope because you know she's never coming home because you killed her.
1: Balian further supported his claim that Robert Durst killed Kathy by examining a statement that Durst made during an interview with Andrew Jarecki
0: you were the one who disposed of her body. You would know exactly how Kathy's body was disposed. When he was interviewed by Andrew Drecki, he was asked a question. and In response to that question, he started discussing Detective Becerra's reinvestigation. And if you recall, Detective Becerra sent divers into the lake, et cetera. And this is what came out of the defendant's mouth when he was discussing it.
5: What were the,
3: what were the divers for? They were, you know, the lake, a, I just... I mean, she never said, but obviously they're looking for body parts.
0: Obviously they're looking for body parts. If you know you chopped her up. No one talked about body parts to him prior to that interview. It wouldn't be obvious to anyone you're looking for body parts. If Kathy died and you're looking for her body, you're going to look for her body. You're not going to look for body parts unless you know she's been chopped up. He let the truth slip. What else do we know? What else can we look at to determine whether he disposed of her body? There's a lot of other acts that happen in Galveston with him dismembering Morris, with him killing Morris, with him killing Kathy, with him killing Susan, that are interrelated. What I'm talking about, I'm referring to it as a playbook. It's the way he acts. It's the way he does it. It's his modus operandi. It's a common plan that he has. It's his go-to move, if you would. And the defendant started developing this playbook after he killed Kathy. And my title, it. it's not his title, this isn't a real book. This is just an, an example for you guys. But he tried to figure out, how do I get away with murder? What's my go-to move? What's my common planner scheme? And the first entry he has when you're trying to get away with murder is you got to get rid of the body. When it's in your home, you, you got to get rid of the body. If you kill them in their home or you kill them on the street, you can run away. But when you kill them in your home, you've got to get rid of the body.
2: Balian alleged that after Durst disposed of his wife's body, he wanted to make it appear as though she were still alive. And so he enlisted his closest friend to call the dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, pretending to be Kathy. I
0: don't think it's any shock that I'm going to argue that the overwhelming evidence in this case is that Susan Berman made that call. What would we expect her to do? What do we know about Susan? We know she has a gangster mentality. We know she's fiercely loyal. We know that she would have done damn close to anything to help her best friend, Bobby. We know she actively is pushing a narrative that Kathy's alive and ran away from her life when we know that's not true. So what would we have expected Susan Berman to do? What did Susan say she did? You were presented more than just what Susan's habits and customs tell you she would do. You were presented with overwhelming evidence that she was telling everybody she made this call. He tried to silence her, but he did not succeed because you heard her words. She spoke to you through her friends. I helped him. I made the call. You heard from multiple people, who I had about a hundred PowerPoint slides talking about their credibility and why we should believe them. And all those slides got wiped off my computer when he took the stand and he said, Susan was the one telling everybody that I killed Kathy. Susan was the one telling all of these people that she called the medical school pretending to be Kathy. And here's the moment it happened. <laughs>
3: You had already told a dozen people, or 15 people, or 18 people, and she had given me an alibi by calling Albert Einstein Medical Center. There was no secret about that.
4: Well, Mr. Durst, you know that she had told people now, but you didn't know that then, correct?
3: I I knew some of them.
4: Wait, so you knew before Susan had been murdered, that she had told people that you had called Albert Einstein, that she had called Albert Einstein pretending to be Kathy at your request?
3: I know that Susan Barman had told people that she telephoned Albert Einstein at my request.
0: When did he know that Susan was telling this to all these people?
3: I think Julie said something to me a long, long time before Susan Berman died. Like maybe five years before.
0: The defendant knew for a while, for years, that Susan Berman was out there telling people that he killed his wife. Telling people she called the dean, pretending to be Kathy. And the evidence is overwhelming that he killed his wife. But I want you to think about this. Let's assume, for whatever reason, you don't believe we've proven he killed his wife. The defendant, by his own testimony, even if he didn't kill Kathy, is terrified of this reinvestigation. He's terrified of big bad Janine Pirro, who apparently he believes can indict a ham sandwich. He knows Susan Berman's out there telling the whole world that he killed his wife and she called the dean. He knows that Detective Becerra is going to get to her and interview her. Whether or not he killed his wife, which the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates he did, but whether or not he killed his wife, Susan posed a threat to him. I mean, he killed her because she was a witness. To silence her, to stop her from ever taking that stand. Now, I'm not suggesting he didn't kill Kathy. I just want to be clear on that. The evidence is overwhelming and he killed Kathy. So how does defendant deal with this issue? Of course, his defense takes a familiar path. Susan lied to all these witnesses, just like Kathy lied to everyone about the injuries I'd done to her. I'll call Susan a liar, just like I called Kathy a liar. Let's look at a few of these people. I'm not going to go through all of them, just a few of them to analyze this claim that Susan was a liar. Miriam Barnes was Susan's close friend and neighbor at the time of Dean Cooperman. They lived right next door to each other on Beekman Place, if you remember. And Miriam Barnes got summoned up to Susan's apartment about an urgent situation that had just happened. I want you to listen to this.
5: I got a phone call for
4: Family. What exactly did she say when she was summoning you up to her? She was, she is me. was there anything out kind of ordinary
3: about the way she summoned you up for her?
0: This is something that had just happened. Miriam Barnes is one of the first people Susan called. It was happening in the moment. And what was Susan's demeanor? When she spoke with Miriam,
4: she, she was. I mean, it, it took her a while to get it out.
5: She's very nervous, and when Susan got nervous, she picked at her clip. And, and she said, "I
3: did something today. did And then the statement was, "If anything
0: ever happened to you, Bobby, too." She's there telling Miriam, "You're living proof. If something happens to me, Bobby did it." That's not a lie, that's self-preservation. Who else did we hear from? Susie Harmon. You listen to what Susie Harmon told you and you determine whether Susan Berman was lying.
4: You don't know from I, where She Bob called me, have, he had
3: just called her.
4: Right, but you don't know where Bob would have heard it from, do you? Right? You don't know the source that Bob may have been relying on. It was- 24-hour period that it occurred. I understand, ma'am. But listen, if Bob was being attacked in the press.
5: How could he be attacked in the press? No one knew that something terrible had
4: happened. Well, they knew that she would disappear, didn't they? No. It had just happened. She called me. Something terrible happened. What can we do?
0: I don't know what I'm gonna do. That was in the, and the moment. Terrible it was in the moment. It just happened. Susan didn't have time to reflect and come up with a lie. She's telling people that day, something horrible happened. I'm conflicted, but I helped my friend Bobby. And if something happens to me, Bobby did it. Susan was not lying to these people. She was relating what she had done. We know how Susan felt about Robert Durst. We've heard it over and over. She worshiped him. Bless you. She felt giddy when she talked about him. He walked on water for her. There are an infinite number of reasons why Susan would lie, exaggerate, alter the truth to make her best friend Bobby look better. There are zero reasons why Susan would ever utter a single word to make her best friend Bobby look bad.
2: At the end of the day, Balian passed the baton to prosecutor Ethan Milius, who began the narrative of Durst's crimes in Galveston. Balian informed the court that he would take the helm the next day to conclude the prosecution's closing arguments. John Lewin stated his intent to deliver rebuttal after the defense addresses the jury. We will cover all of that for you in future episodes.
1: Joining us once again to discuss the prosecution's closing argument is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Thank you. So, Charlie, give us what you felt the response was inside the courtroom to Habib Balian's beginning of the prosecution's closing argument.
5: First, I think as soon as the jury sat down, there was a different sense of electricity in the room. We've been going through this for a long time and everyone knows that this is it. And it was palpable. And I I thought that the best thing that Habib Balian did was bring all that massive amount of information in front of us and, and convert it into a very digestible and coherent narrative. And he's come up with what Sounds like what will be the tagline for the prosecution. He said the case can be summed up in nine simple words. It was her or me. I had no choice.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I thought he did a great job of distilling things. Brittany, what was your response? What, what stuck out to you about Balian's closing argument?
2: From the start, I thought he did such a great job of setting the table. I mean, first of all, I could listen to Habib Bailey and read a phone book. He's got such a soothing voice. And he started out with a joke saying that John Lewin gave him some things that he wanted him to hit on and then lifted up this huge stack of papers. But, you know, it was more than just a lighthearted moment. He used that to kind of transition into we joke a lot, but of course this is very serious. And I just thought he went really seamlessly between connecting connecting with the jury and making his point. And I thought throughout his presentation, he did a great job of using visuals to highlight or elucidate a point. And of course, my favorite part of the day was the bowl full of cockroaches. He said, if you got a bowl of soup and there was a cockroach in it, would you just pick it out and assume the rest of the bowl of soup is fine? No, well, that's the same way that you might think about the lies and the perjury that Durst committed on the stand. The whole thing in a way is tainted And he even said, of course, that doesn't mean there aren't moments when the truth slipped out, but we'll get into that. And I just thought that was really effective.
5: I thought it was pretty funny. You know, prior to the day officially beginning, there was some debate with the defense about whether that was too disgusting to present to the jury. I guess they never lived in a a Manhattan apartment. It was only one cockroach (laughs) held up by two fingers. It wasn't that disgusting, but it it was a, a very memorable way of making his point.
1: I think it was actually two cockroaches, one of them being held up by two fingers. But your point is well taken, Charlie. It it was a pretty benign image at the end of the day. And I did think there were a couple of notable things generally about Balian. First of all, he gave the jury permission to make it an easy decision. I thought that was really clever. You know, there's a lot of information here. But it's actually not that hard to come to the determination that Robert Durst is lying when he says he didn't kill those three people. And he's actually telling the truth when he says he would lie about it if he did. And I I thought that was a very smart way to open up his closing argument. The second thing that I thought was very clever was he offered Bob Durst's playbook And he even had a cheesy, campy picture of how to get away with murder with like a football diagram on the front of it. And then started to enumerate Bob Durst's pattern for how he has dealt with all three of these alleged murders. And it began to create a pattern for the jury so that when they go back for their deliberations, they have a framework to look at everything and to organize it. I thought that was really clever. Were there any other tactical things that either of you thought were particularly worth noting?
2: One thing that I thought was really effective was the way that he played back video testimony from some of the witnesses that we've seen, which is sort of what we've been doing on this podcast. And I think it really highlighted just how credible they were. Hearing once again from the doctors at Albert Einstein, hearing again from Fadwa Najami, even though it's been in some cases, four months since the jury has seen those faces, I think it made it feel all the more immediate.
5: I agree with you. And the way it was done, it's so well organized, and it was one after another, and it was so smooth. I think that it it was very effective in that sense.
1: Yeah, I, I also think that he was very wise to, early on in his argument, go after the way that Durst, as A witness treated the memory of Kathy Durst. He summoned up outrage for the way that Durst talked about this woman who had worked so hard to become a doctor, had put in the hours, was widely regarded as an extremely hardworking and accomplished student and that he would trash her memory on the stand to preserve his own skin. I thought it was very powerful when Balian summoned up a sense of indignance about doing that. And he was also very gracious in pointing out that it wasn't the lawyers who were doing that. It was Durst that was doing it. I'm not sure that his co-counsel, Mr. Lewin, would have been that gracious if he were presenting that part of the argument.
2: Absolutely. I thought just naming Robert Durst as a witness in this case was a really good reminder that a lot of the most damning evidence came from his own mouth.
1: Any final thoughts about the job that Balian did and how he summed up his part of the
5: prosecution's closing? So, for the most part, Mr. Balian is at a podium looking directly at the jury. And at one point in his presentation, he whirled around, and he looked and pointed at Mr. Durst, Mr. Durst in turn raised his hands and shook them hard at Mr. Balian. It was clearly hitting home.
1: Wow, so he was like confronting Balian with a kind of anger demonstrating that for the jury.
5: Yes, as much anger as you can muster from the you know from a wheelchair.
2: I would be scared by that
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Voldemort lives. Well, that feels like a good place to end today's conversation. Charlie, thanks again for being with us. And join us for the next episode of Jury Duty The Trial of Robert Durst, where we will continue our coverage of the prosecution's closing argument and then move on to the defense team's closing. ACAS powers
0: the world's best podcasts.
2: Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one. And head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Nodavartolo with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Nodavartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.